As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello there, buzz killers. I was recently interviewed on a wonderful new podcast. It's called The All-American Legacy. It's about the 82nd Airborne Division of the United States Army. It's a division that's been around a long time. Even before they invented military airplanes, the 82nd was going. Lots of famous people, lots of very important people have been in that division. And we talked a lot about not only war, but how the myths of war sort of are generated and how they spread. And they've recently aired that that show, that interview with me and another historian. And we liked it so much, we thought the Buzzkillers would like to hear it as well. So we're, we're re-releasing it, with their permission, of course, uh, to our listeners on our feed. And I hope you like it. But before we do that, I want to do something called a pre-roll. Because this is one of our episodes, we want to have a big, nice shout-out to our sponsors, Harry's Razors. I know that all victorious military leaders and all the people who liberated Europe were fans of Harry's razors. Even before the internet was was invented, they got on the telegraph and they typed out their message to harrys.com, please send me your fantastic razors. Those fantastic razors not only support the show and keep us going, they have a soft flex hinge for more comfortable glide, a trimmer blade for hard to reach places, lubricating strip, textured handle. I've got a hunter green one. It's fantastic looking. It's kind of army green, frankly, for more control when it's wet. And Harry's only charges $2 a blade compared to, you know who, the big ripoff razor companies that charge you $4 or more, right? Harry's isn't like that. Why? Because two guys, Jeff and Andy, saw the vast wasteland of the razor world. And they realized not only was the great opportunity to start a good new business, but it was the right thing to do. They went out and bought a razor factory in Germany they make their own razors, directly sell them to you for half the price of the ripoff razor companies, and they keep quality control right under their noses, so to speak. And their blades are still just $2 compared to the $4 or more you pay for those big ripoff razor companies. And most importantly, for you anyway, Harry's has a special offer for buzz killers. They'll send you their popular trial set for free when you go to harrys.com. The free trial set includes the razor, the five-blade cartridge, the shaving gel. You just pay $3 for shipping, something like that. But when you get to checkout, 
enter the code buzzkill, B-U-Z-Z-K-I-L-L, and they'll add in their post-shave balm for free. The post-shave balm is great. It's gotten me through many a northern hemisphere winter. You'll look better. Your face will feel better all day when you use it. Of course, your Harry's subscription plan is customizable. We wouldn't advertise anything that wasn't customizable in terms of shipping frequency, and you can cancel at any time. Let me go over that again. Harry's.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter the code BUZZKILL, two Zs, two Ls, at checkout. You'll get a great razor blade, shave cream, and the post-shave balm for free, and you'll have a whole new world of better and more affordable shaves. Now, let's go on to the All-American Legacy podcast featuring... Yours truly. Hey, podcast listeners. Master Sergeant Dan Bailey here. We said at the end of last week's episode we were going to take a look at what happened to the division between World War I and World War II this week. But we had an opportunity to speak with a couple of knowledgeable folks that shared some very good information about the redeployment of the 82nd back to the States and the situation they returned to at home. We'll have the post-World War I episode next week. To help set the scene for this week's episode... I'm going to quickly share a summary of a memorandum from the 82nd Division Chief of Staff impressing upon the soldiers they must now prepare to return to civilian life, and that preparation was as important and difficult as their initial military training. Memorandum to Headquarters, 82nd Division, 17 March, 1919. Within a short time, all but a few members of the division will return to civil life and they should be as well fitted to take up civil pursuits as the present conditions permit. The conditions in the United States will be found very different from those which prevailed at the time the division left, and the great economic readjustment caused by the termination of the war is now in process of changing the conditions and customs with which most of us are familiar. Every help will be given to the members of this division to ensure their fitting into the peacetime system at home but it must be impressed on all that the future of the individual in civil life will depend primarily on his own qualities, character, and initiative, and that any assistance that can be rendered is supplementary. Members of the command should realize that, because of the part they took in the operations during this war, they have the opportunity and the obligation to become leaders in the life of the nation at home, and they will be expected to assume that position. This is an opportunity and an obligation of the greatest importance for the future of the United States now lies in our hands. Team play, rather than individual or factional struggles, will lead to the true solution of the difficulties ahead. Signed, Lieutenant Colonel George E. Roosevelt, 82nd Division, Chief of Staff. This is the 82nd Airborne Division, fearless among fighting units. From Fort Bragg, home of the Airborne and the center of the military universe, This is the All-American Legacy Podcast, an inside look at the 100-year history of the 82nd. They are All-American all the way. Welcome back to the All-American Legacy Podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Joe Buccino. Today we've got a few guests joining us as we wrap up our discussion on World War I. First on the show is Dr. Jennifer Keene. She is the History Department Chair at Chapman University. She's the author of several books about World War I, to include one titled World War I, The American Soldier Experience, which is a look back at the daily lives of the men who served the United States in the Great War. She really is an expert in this field about 
the mobilization for war, the conduct of the war, and then the return of our soldiers to America. Then later in the show, we're going to talk to Dr. Joseph Kuhill, who you might know better as the host of the hit podcast, Professor Buzzkill. And we're going to talk some World War I and II myths and see what he has to say. But for now, we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Keene. Good afternoon. We'll start off with a simple question here, one that many of our listeners may not know the answer to, which you are certainly more than qualified to answer. This is an easy one for you. So the American public, we know, referred to its World War I infantrymen as Doughboys. The All-American Division uh, was, for the most part, Doughboys. So what is the origin of that title? It's interesting that you start with a question that has actually no definitive answer. Mm. People aren't really exactly sure where that nickname originated from. It was a popular label that um, was initially attached to cavalrymen in the 19th century, and some people think it's because of the dust that collected um, as they were stationed along the southwest border. Um, Another tale comes from uniforms in the late 19th century, in which the buttons had a kind of doughy shape to them. Uh, So it doesn't have a clear origin, but it certainly became one of the most popular nicknames that was attached to American soldiers in the First World War. Yeah, we're finding a lot of the names and titles, the origin, a lot of the names and titles from 1917 and and the early part of 1918, I guess they weren't fully documented. A lot of this is a little unclear. Exactly. There's a whole uh, bunch of Army slang that comes into being. When we think of some of the other nicknames for American soldiers, Sammies, Yanks, or even Pershing's Crusaders, I think it's more. there's a more obvious direct connection to the First World War. We can think of Uncle Sam or Yankees or even the idea that America was on a crusade for democracy. All those things have a much clearer link to the actual First World War. Doughboys, a bit of a mystery, but it became a very popular term nonetheless. Right. Um, so part of the story of the 82nd Division in 1917 that we talk a lot about is the transition of civilians from all over the country to soldiers and then into a fighting force that was cohesive and able to conduct movement and maneuver in the Argonne Forest. And that's something you've written about extensively, not about the division, but about the War Department, about this broader problem across the Army. And so the, the, the Army, the War Department, and in our case the 82nd, turned civilians into soldiers, and then leaders had to prepare them for, to train this war machine that was already years ahead of us. And uh, our first commander, Major General Edwin Swift, was in a tough spot in, in, this, in this regard. So how did that experience shape the war? but also the, the, the post-war experience, this kind of newness of this experience and uh, the notion of, of putting all of this together very quickly. It was definitely true that in the First World War, the Army had a challenge it had never had before, which was that it had to take millions of men and, and transform them in a matter of a few months, as you say, to to fight against very sophisticated, well-trained uh, armies that had been in existence often before the First World War. 
most European societies had a tradition of peacetime military conscription. So men had spent maybe two or three years already in military service before they even uh, before their na- nations even entered the First World War. We didn't have anything like that. So it was a huge challenge for the American military. And when we often talk about the mistakes that were made during the First World War, we often neglect to really praise them for meeting this challenge as well as they did. And one of the things that uh, the military realized and Pershing realized right from the very beginning was the need for standardization. So rather than allowing commanders or states to kind of come up with their own training programs, as had been the past previous, in, had been, excuse me, had been the, the practice in previous wars, they come up with a fairly rigid standardized training program. So that's one of the first important steps in creating a mass army. And they also enlist a lot of specialists. They try, they turn to the civilian community and they bring in occupational specialists, they bring in psychologists to try to help them sort through all these men that are coming in. How can they actually identify quickly who should go to officer training camp, who should be a stevedore, who should be an infantryman, who's got the know-how to actually be in field artillery. And so they utilize these specialists um, to a certain extent. They also turn to the Allies. We have French and uh, British instructors that come over and are helping get uh, the American Army up to, up to speed. So all of these are ways that they tackle this problem of very quickly turning civilians into soldiers. They didn't do it perfectly. A lot of mistakes were made. One of the reasons Many historians believe there were such high casualties in the American Army because of some soldiers not receiving the training uh, that they needed. But one of the things that really percolated in post-war society was the idea that this lack of preparedness was not something America could afford for its national defense. And so you did have the idea of starting to require military training of American civilians. This doesn't happen, but it, it opens up the the notion that we can't be caught left-footed again. And so as we move into the Second World War, we will actually have a peacetime draft. We start drafting men before we officially declare war, the idea we have to be better prepared if we're going to fight in this kind of conflict. Right. You mentioned General Pershing. Uh, Dr. King, you mentioned General Pershing. We should just explain for those who are are unfamiliar, General Pershing was the commander of all American forces, the American Expeditionary Forces in the Great War. So um, so the, the division, in this regard, as we're putting this thing together, the division was comprised of soldiers from all 48 states. That is now a very well-known fact, at least here, among people who follow this division. We also had soldiers of foreign birth. About 20% of the division were immigrants. And, and when you read the accounts from the leaders in uh, the St. Mihail Offensive, it was hard for the division to communicate with one another in some cases because of the the broad diversity of accents, obviously American accents, southern, northern, western, and then foreign accents. So across the army, across the American forces, how did this diversity impact the fight against this, this enemy that was more, much more homogenous? This is another respect in which the 82nd Division is really representative of the entire American force. 20% of the division being foreign-born, this this was actually exactly the same percentage of foreign-born in the entire army. So 
immigrant soldiers, this was not a small issue for the Army. This was major. And as you suggested, this introduced a whole new set of issues for the military. They had to think about language. They had to think about food. They had to think about religion. They had to think about uh, just basic communication uh, and camaraderie among men who came from incredibly different backgrounds. And so in in the training regime, <clears throat> besides just training people, <clears throat> excuse me, physically to fight, there had to be a kind of political education and just remedial education that people were receiving. So you see <clears throat> English classes, uh, classes in reading, you see classes in um, in patriotism, understanding American political history, if you want people to actually fight for the same country, do they even know the values of the country that they're fighting for? And what was interesting, I think, in all of this is that immigrants are not resistant. They're very pleased to be given these opportunities. These were people who had come to the United States. They'd chosen to make the United States their home. And many of them were very happy to fight for America. They had been, in some sense, isolated in ethnic enclaves and almost shut out from mainstream society up until this point. And now the Army was opening the door to them and saying, we want you to be assimilated. We want to help you with that process. So most immigrant soldiers were very willing to participate in these programs and were um, as patriotic as native-born troops. And so in this sense, uh, the uh, having immigrant soldiers in the military did not diminish the fighting capacity of the American Army. Our, our big moments in the war were uh, St. Mihail and then Meuse-Argonne. Meuse-Argonne was kind of our signature moment. How does, how does the Meuse-Argonne offensive compare with the deadliest battles in, in U.S. history? The Meuse-Argonne is, is an interesting battle. It's, it's the, the longest and some people feel the most lethal battle in American history, it lasts for 47 days, and I think that it's, it's for, the, for the Army at the time, it really demonstrates all its strengths and weaknesses. It's, it's a battle that Pershing is not necessarily prepared to fight. He has to fight it in the fall of 1918. He always believed that his Army would not be ready to fight a climactic battle until uh, at least a year later. So some of the mistakes in the battle, you see the, the fact that that these troops are being rushed in into fight. So there are problems with maintaining momentum. Um, you see some discipline problems. You see um, people uh, just unable to cope with the very difficult terrain in the, in the Muser gun. But then you also see uh, some, some of the strengths of the American Army, which is the tremendously fast learning curve that the military was able to to achieve. And so by the end of the battle, you see air power being used much more effectively. You see combined arms uh, being used much more, much more effectively. And I think that in, in this sense, that really does mimic a lot of the great battles in American history where you see mistakes early on, but you also see tremendous, tremendous learning on the ground and an ability to... Uh, to persevere and innovate at the moment, and and I think the Muser gun fits very well into that into that narrative of 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 American uh, of American uh, uh, battlefield history. Right. So so let's talk a little bit about what happened after the war. 
in March 1919, the 82nd Division began returning to the United States. In a general memorandum from March of 1919, the Division Chief of Staff, which was at the time Lieutenant Colonel George Roosevelt, wrote that within a short time, all but a few members of the division will return to civil life, and they should be as well fitted to take up civil pursuits as the present conditions permit. And so it turns out it was not quite that easy. Uh, reintegrating soldiers after global war was a new experience for us. How did the homeland receive our doughboys? Well, I think that when we think about American soldiers coming back from the First World War, we, we have, there's two ways to look at it. One is the initial public response, which was very patriotic. There were a lot of parades, a lot of speeches. In that sense, American soldiers were welcomed home as, as heroes. The day after the parade, there's very much the idea that the war is over. It's time for you as an individual to really figure out how you're going to pick up the pieces of your, your life. We talked a little bit about how unprepared the United States was to, to fight, to organize, to train this army. It was equally unprepared to demobilize this army and really think systematically about how to help veterans return home. And so there are few fledgling programs uh, to try to help veterans find employment, very little attention paid to the, to the, the psychological issues that, that combat veterans were going to come home with. And really, at the end of the day, the sense of overall dissatisfaction that so little had been done for the returning veteran. And this was going to be important because this memory that the Army and the government had not treated veterans appropriately, this was going to motivate this generation of veterans to become very politically active in the 1920s and 1930s to both help their own situation and also to help future generations avoid the difficulties that they had encountered. So you write in your book, uh, Doughboys, you write about how World War I changed the meaning of U.S. military service. The book is Doughboys, The Great War, and the Remaking of America. Um, the, those who fought in the Civil War and the Spanish-American War fought largely for and with their individual states. In World War, II, in World War I, uh, our Doughboys fought in this first national mass fighting force. So this is particularly important for us, the All-American Division, which broadly represented the character of the entire nation. Uh, what impacted this sort of forced notion of national cohesion have on the country after more than four million soldiers returned from the war and re-entered American society. So the idea that you have been part of a national army, not just a member of a state unit or a, a local a local regiment, this really impacted how veterans saw themselves. They saw themselves as unified and having gone through very similar experiences. In this sense, they saw the Army as a great melting pot in which it, it no longer really mattered whether you were from the north, the south, the east, or the west. It still mattered if you were black or white, but, but other, other traditional divisions seemed less important. And this attitude helped a brand-new veterans organization, the American Legion, really become the spokesman for returning veterans. And the American Legion, we see now takes stands on big national issues. It doesn't just think about local issues. And this was something veterans hadn't really done before. They hadn't been players in sort of big national debates that had to do with immigration, defense issues, um, 
the Red Scare and concerns about, about communism, and then, of course, veterans' benefits and how we were treating our veterans when they came home. And so the sense that these soldiers had developed more of a national identity of, as Americans while fighting the war also informed veteran politics after the war. And because the American Legion becomes a very powerful lobbying group in post-war American society, it mattered that veterans had this new perspective. So the the soldiers came back to a confusing place in, in America after immediately after World War I. Racial violence on the rise, and the country was in a significant recession. The Red Scare brought on a fear of, of immigrants. So we, we think about, I think sometimes we think about the country is divided today. Um, there seems to be these kind of threads, these kind of trends throughout our history. Uh, so how did the return of these veterans shape American society in the aftermath of the war? Well, it's interesting. We certainly have political divisions today, and we have arguments about what you're referring to in 1919 is actual violence. I mean, we had, we had really, in a, it's not an exaggeration to say blood running in the streets with, with strikes, with race riots, with um, concerns about uh, Bolshevism, and, and this was a really, really violent time. The question about how veterans fit into this is a great one because it's important to appreciate that veterans did not instigate this violence. They, in a sense, returned home to a society that was all, already fighting. And the, the, groups, the group that's probably the most directly connected to this violent time in terms of maybe engaging in it and also suffering from it are African-American soldiers, because African-American soldiers are targeted in many Southern communities with violence, and we see a new ethos in the civil rights movement coming into being, which is an ethos of fighting back. And so we see African-American soldiers also joining civil rights organizations in large numbers and taking leadership roles and really making a decision to fight for racial justice in the United States. But for many white veterans, what we, what we really see is that they, they, they move away from the idea of trying to solve social problems violently. And so I was just speaking about the American Legion. The American Legion is very careful to discipline posts where it might appear that uh, uh, local groups might be tr looking to them sort of as auxiliaries to the police force. They don't want to get directly involved in these kind of law, law and order issues. So they pull back and, and really offer uh, a different way of resolving some of the disputes, and that's mostly by lobbying Washington, looking for veterans' benefits. They're, they're big in a movement called the Adjusted Compensation Movement, where they want veterans to have a bit more money to help them ease their, their, their life after, after the war. And so, if anything, I see these returning veterans as being part of peaceful solutions to resolving these divisions, not as uh, men who have been trained to fight, who are now ready to take up arms to defend their points of view within American society. There is, uh, you hear this a lot, not a lot, but you do hear it sometimes, that we've never been this divided, and certainly, ideologically, people have corners right now, and, and there are peaceful protests, but the notion that we've never been this divided is ignorant completely of history. You have to look at 1919 before you say something like that. Right. There's no doubt that right. in 1919, like I said, 
you literally have people fighting in the streets. Right. Um, that you know we 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 really have. We have very vocal disagreements, but people are, as you pointed out, are demonstrating peacefully their, their civil disagreement. We're, we're using the proper channels through the courts and through our elected representatives to articulate our differences. And I think that that, that, that demonstrates the strength of American political institutions. Even the fact that in 1919, even with that violence, it does not result in any sort of dramatic uh, weakening of American democratic institutions. And I should point out there's always a fear when you take a bunch of men out of civilian life, you teach them how to use firearms and they fight. Who are these people coming back? Are they going to come back as killers? Are they ready to actually you know, be part of paramilitary groups to seek violent solutions to disagreements? And if we look at Europe, we see that that's certainly a distinct possibility in the interwar period. That's exactly what happens in Germany. But it's not what happens in the United States. And, and so that's a really important thing for us to remember, that these men, for the most part, do successfully reintegrate into civilian society. They do believe that they fought to maintain a democratic way of life. And while our democracy was certainly not perfect, people remained invested in that concept of America. And that's what they had been told and taught when they became citizen soldiers, and they did not lose that faith, um, even despite the difficulties that they had on the battlefields or even coming home. Yeah. I told my daughter that, you know, our institutions have worked through this before on, on a much larger scale, on a much more ferocious scale, the reintegration of soldiers from combat, the you know, political upheaval, political uncertainty, and our, we're so grounded in our institutions that these foundational ideas and these instruments will always save us. I, and I think that it's important that we have a military, and, and this military really came into being in the First World War, that sees its role as defending those institutions. And it and it never sets itself up in opposition to those institutions, where in other societies you have the military actually doing that, that it becomes an alternative source of power and authority as opposed to um, uh, an institution that's in service of democracy. And I think that in the, when you talk about creating a national army in the First World War and having immigrants and people from all walks of life coming in, this was a shared vision that the military took pains to actually ensure that everybody heard. There's a lot of propaganda within the military, or I say education within the military, to make sure that people understood this was their role as, as a soldier in uniform. Um, and I think that people uh, became a sense of school for the nation. I mean, it's, it's and at a time when a lot of people didn't go to school for very long. So this became an important patriotic education for people for people to have. And that's that's an important role for our military to continue to play, even in even in present day society. Our commander here for the division, he whenever he does a reenlistment or a promotion ceremony, he, he reminds everyone that, you know, we take an oath to an idea and, and that idea has to be protected by arms. And that's that's our role. That's our role in society. So see, that's excellent, and that's and that's a message that you can't say enough times. Yeah. And this is and so when you talk about it being a national institution, that's 
a distinct difference to, to view that this is an important message for soldiers uh, to um, to hear because everybody is, a, is first a citizen and then a soldier, and that's the right way to think about it. <laughs> when you say, somebody's asking me the other day, what, what's, what's the difference between a citizen soldier and just a soldier? And I think especially in America, there's a, that's a, it's important to always look at our soldiers as citizen soldiers, you're citizens first, and then you're, and then you're a soldier. Right. Okay, Dr. Keene, I really do appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Right. We'll see you. Thanks. Bye. So that was Dr. Jennifer Keene. We want to thank her for her time and for coming on the podcast. We do hope people check out the book, Doughboys, The Great War, and the Remaking of America. Uh, and now we transition to Dr. Joseph Kuhill, another historian. You probably know him. You may know him as Professor Buzzkill. Dr. Kuhill has a doctorate in modern history from Oxford, as well as an MA from the University of Melbourne. He's published several books and many articles, and he's taught history at universities in Britain and the United States. Dr. Kuhill is an entertaining historian. He tells American history in a very compelling way, and we hope you find that to be the case here with this interview. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Professor Buzzkill, thanks for being on the All-American Legacy podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Part of what you talk about very publicly is the the challenges of determining historic truth. For, for a lot of our history, that's not a particularly big challenge. People recorded things, and people are still uh, here to provide uh, their accounts from uh, the Cold War deployments and uh, Gulf War, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But uh, those things are not really the case with World War One. Yeah, it's much more difficult. The further back you go, it's 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 more difficult, and of course, it's reliant on just print records, really, in World War One. Although you know, uh, all the military history experts that I talk to are very impressed with um, with with official histories in general because official military history in general because they go into such detail and. They've got that added purpose that I think people forget of, of being a real teachable document. You know, the military wants to understand what happens so that it can improve its tactics and its strategy for the next time something like that happens. And so they really do, they really are careful. Obviously, mistakes creep in and there are political agendas and personal agendas, but overall, I think they're very good, especially, if, you know, as more time passes and people get better and better at them. I think the most crucial element in this is whoever gets the story in first. And often that's newspaper reporters or journalists of some kind. But um, when it comes to writing official histories or when there are interviews with people involved, usually the first version of the story gets accepted by everyone. Even if the first version of the story isn't accurate or is skewed in some way, after all, some people only see part of a battlefield, some people see... Um, only part of a, of a whole offensive operation or whatever it is. And so the, the, the broad picture doesn't appear too much later, but then it's almost too late. And very often the first version of the story is the most dramatic and the most interesting and the most compelling, so it just gets taken up because these are, after all, good stories, or we wouldn't be bothering trying to figure, trying to understand them, trying to tell them if they weren't good stories. 
Right. And how do historic uh, myths, how do they manifest? How do they come into the collective consciousness? Well, one, one of the ways is just simple mistakes along the lines of what I was saying, that, that you know, the, often the first version of the story or the first report of a story gets accepted as fact and just gets repeated and repeated. And so if, that, if there's something wrong with that story, a version of the story, then, then it just becomes, it becomes accepted fact. But another thing that happens, and which is really kind of very interesting, and I didn't really realize until we did research here on, on how this happens, and that is that there's something called the, the removal of qualifiers. And so if I say to you that, um, you know, the 82nd was one of the most important divisions in a particular action, uh, and then someone else said, someone else hears and they say, oh, Professor Buskill said, uh, the 82nd was the most important division in a certain action. In other words, they drop words like very or a one of or brief or anything that has a modifier to the action verb gets dropped the further the story is passed on. It's like that game of telephone that you used to play as a kid or, or it's like how you know, urban legends start. So we say that Patton was one of many great generals. Well, by the time that gets to the third hand or fourth hand, it becomes Patton is the great general. If you know what I'm saying, people are dropping the, the, the first thing that people drop when they repeat stories is, is important qualifiers. Right. Right. So, and I do think, uh, you know, one of the things I've heard you talk about is the importance of understanding World War One. You know, we, right. in many ways, World War Two sort of for, for the country, particularly for this division, but really for the country, World War II blankets World War One. Certainly, I think we can understand that, but you know, World War One is is so important to our understanding of the world right now. We're understanding the foundations of World War One and uh, our participation and how our participation really tipped the scales. The notion of modern empire, the notion of, of modern colonialism, all of these things... Uh, can be understood better through an understanding of World War One. Oh, absolutely. And, and not only is all, all that true, but what's also true but has been erased is the idea that World War One wasn't such a big deal, especially for the Americans because the Americans are only in it for a year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in American culture at the time, World War One is a very, very big deal. Not only was the was the country heavily involved in supporting the Allies before the Americans actually got into the war. But participation in the war, the draft, raising of money, the raising of, of, of relief efforts for the Belgians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was, was the first time really that the country had done things on that massive a scale. And a lot of the patriotic imagery, for instance, that we're used to seeing now Uncle Sam and the, the increased use of the flag as the main iconic image of American patriotism, those all come from World War One. In fact, you could argue that even things like the GI Bill, which of course was implemented after World War Two, was really in a reaction to the the bonus marchers after World War One marching and protesting that they weren't getting their bonus, they wanted to get it early and, and, and during the Depression. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So World War One had a huge impact, not only on Europe and imperialism in the world, but on American political consciousness. It was the biggest thing until World War Two came along. 
Right, and and you know when you think about our our modern wars and our participation therein, you're talking about a very small, minuscule, really minuscule fragment of the country. You know, less than one percent, quite frankly. That's right. And and you know this was a little more than ten percent of the country participated directly in World War One, but the entire country, virtually participated in, in a larger way. Yeah, that's right. Even the, the sort of campaign to um, knit socks for soldiers in the trenches and soldiers on the front was a huge deal in the uh, for American women at home. And it was so much of a big deal that, that you would often see images of women knitting socks while they were listening to their, their kids' elementary school band play, something you know, that, that women were always knitting to keep the, the, the boys at the front you know, in well, you know, in clean socks and try to stop trench foot and all that sort of stuff. So it really is a big national effort that, that tends to get forgotten nowadays. It was a big national effort, and, and virtually every major population center was impacted in some way. You know, virtually uh-huh. virtually every industry was impacted in some way. And we don't really have any any current-day parallel for that. No, and I think one of the things that gets forgotten is how much World War One especially accelerates the uh, use and the efficiency of, of technology at the time. So it becomes very, very important that, that telegraphs, for instance, uh, telegraph to not, uh, telegraphic to, uh, technology is improved and speeded up. Radio gets much more important than ever before. Wars, and particularly big wars, tend to do this. After all, one of the big reasons for the the, the growth of the airline industry after World War II is that World War II greatly <laughs> increased the sophistication and efficiency and, of, of, you know, airplane technology. So we, we live, literally live day to day with some of the outgrowths of the um, importance of World War I and World War II. One of the figures that emerges from our World War I history is uh, Sergeant Alvin York. And yeah. so this is in many ways right up your alley with the things you talk about. Um, a lot yeah. of uh, controversy about what really happened. Yeah, so, of course, your, your listeners will know all about Sergeant York, but he's one of the most the most famous, probably, soldier coming out of World War I, for the Americans anyway. And, but people are always, as they should, go, going back over and trying to figure out, well, did these things really happen the way... We, we've been told they happened. Did he really sort of capture 130-some-odd German soldiers single-handedly, blah, 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 blah. And so historians and even people with archaeological bents have gone back over the old battlefields and looked at, tried to figure out, okay, this is where the hill you're supposed to have captured those men on was. They've looked at shell casings, all those kinds of things, to try to determine whether the story is accurate or whether, as some other people have argued, I don't happen to agree with, the story was enhanced by the American government not only to help raise war morale in 1918, but to increase the United States, to sort of increase the peace from morale and the U.S. being involved in international affairs after World War I morale after the war. And Sergeant York was sent on, on um, speaking trips and all that kind of stuff after the war. Now... I think it's very pretty clear that the the record of what York did during the war was very accurate. Um, but again, that's all it's it's debated, as you say. So 
it's important to keep things, it's important to keep discussing these things, because when we discuss these things, then we think more deeply about history and about how the decisions we make based on history need to be thought about carefully, you know, as grown-ups, not just reacting the way we've seen things in movies. Right, so the division uh, participated in uh, Musargan. That's where we know. That's how, where we know of the story of Alvin York. And and what the, and and seeing about Musargan, which is really tragic, is when you ask Americans, or when Americans say what they think, the bloodiest single day or the bloodiest single battle in American history was, they often say Antietam or Gettysburg or even D-Day. When it's really Musargan, that is. You know, twelve and a half thousand, I think, mm-hmm. men killed in that thing. It's 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 a it's a very very big deal. And when every time I've thought about it and looked into it, I'm very very impressed at how seriously not only military historians take it, but the people who were involved in the official war graves commission and things like that take it. Really, up until this day, you can go on YouTube and see. The various observ- uh, various commemorations on specific anniversaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There aren't many spectators there, but the army's all there, and you know these things just get sort of buried by more flashy, if you will, battles and um, and engagements. So that's really what we're after here, and and that that uh, understanding of. Um you know, the division's role, and, and uh, you know, the division is well known for its airborne legacy. It had a great legacy in, in World War One, and, and its participation in World War One should be understood as well. Yeah, and and it is, of course, as we know, perhaps the most famous specifically because of Mies Nordon, but, but again, those things, as, as you say, and, and, and as we say on our show, they tend to get steamrolled by uh, subsequent history and flashier history, you know, Airborne sounds more exciting, and certainly I'm sure uh, parachuting out of an airplane is more exciting than being an infantryman. But in terms of what actually gets accomplished, it's amazing what was what was done in World War One. It was a very, especially by your division, it was a very, very big deal. Right. So I think what's so great about your podcast is that you know the more we know and the more we hear as a culture about what happened, we'll understand that history is not only more complicated, but that it's more compelling. Than we thought before, you know that World War One isn't a boring war where people just sit in trenches. It's very dynamic and very exciting and very bloody and very awful in many ways. And it's you know it really needs to be studied at least as extensively as World War Two. And it is a great legacy. It's a great history, and it's uh, you know important for the country. Right, and I really hope that that you'll get the listeners and and the, the attention that you deserve. Okay, uh, Professor, uh, we thank you greatly for your time and um, look forward to talking to you again. Well, thank you very much. And uh, your listeners can go subscribe to our show, ProfessorBuzzkill.com. As they know, and as I'm sure you've said, subscription to podcasts is always free and it's fun. And I hope that uh, you enjoyed it. And I, hope, I, can't, I can't wish you more success for your podcast. I, think you, I hope you do wonderfully and uh, that, it, that it gets the message out. Thank you. And Professor Buzzkill is a fun, cool way to either learn or, I guess, in many ways, relearn history. Um, I certainly hope so. So that was our discussion with Dr. Joseph Kuhill, otherwise known as Professor Buzzkill. He is an interesting guy, has a great, unique perspective. We recommend you check out his website, ProfessorBuzzkill.com, and subscribe to the Professor Buzzkill podcast. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast, the All-American Legacy Podcast. Next week on the All-American Legacy Podcast, we're going to wrap up our discussion on World War I and talk about what exactly happened to the division between 1919, the end of World War I, and its reconstitution for World War II. Here's a preview. At the time, there was no real role for a peacetime army in the way that we think of ourselves as the army right now. Um, you know, World War I came to an end, and the country didn't really understand having a standing, a fully functioning standing army with no war. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.